If you've got your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Today we're going to talk about a divine encounter. A divine encounter. When I was at Liberty University, they had a thing called the Harvest Day, and it was where we would kind of go around and we would knock on doors and we would share the gospel with people. And I remember going out a few times and hearing how some of my friends would come back and they would be so excited. They'd be like, man, we, we ran into this one lady and she just opened the door and she said, I was praying for somebody to come by and share the gospel with me and here you are. I remember some of them coming back and saying, you know, we went to this one house and this one young man was about to take his own life. And he said, you know, then you guys showed up at the door, shared the gospel and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And I remember hearing those stories and thinking, man, Lord, I would, I would love to have something like that happen in my life. Well, I was in my very first church and hadn't been there but a little over a year's time. And I felt God really speak to my heart and tell me to go over to this one house uh, to Hobson and Jean Walker. This is my wife's best friend's mom and dad. And so I said, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, I'm going to go. So I got in the car and I just drove over there. Now, Hobson wasn't there, but Jean was there. So I stood outside the front door just talking with her, sharing the gospel with her. I knew God had sent me there. She had a lot of questions. She asked those questions. We worked through everything. And I remember as I left there, right before I left there, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this is exciting. God, only you could set something like that up. But it wasn't even but a couple of weeks later that her husband Hobson also came to know the Lord. And it was just amazing how God designed those divine encounters. And I don't know if you've ever experienced one or if you've ever had your eyes open to be able to experience experience a divine encounter, but that's what we're going to talk about today. As Philip felt directly, divinely called by God to go and seek this man out. So today we're going to look at five scenes in the divine appointment, beginning in Acts 8 and verse 26. We want to see the sending of God's man, the sending of God's man. It says, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Now, you might say, well, what's, what's going on here? It says, now an angel of the Lord appeared. Now, I don't know about you. I would love to see something like that. But then again, I'm not so certain because every time an angel appeared, they always had to say, do not fear. So I don't know if it's because they look scary or what it is or we have a different mindset about what angels are. But all of a sudden, this angel of the Lord appears to Philip and says, I want you to go. Now, Philip is experiencing revival. Philip is in the midst of a whole city, the people of Samaria. They all seem to be coming to know the Lord. And there is a great movement of God going on there. And I think to myself, God, why would you call Philip to leave such a prominent and prospering and flourishing and fruitful ministry and tell him to go down to a deserted road? And you would think that Philip might make up some excuses or he might have a few words to say to the Lord at this point. Like, you know, Lord, I'll go, but not right now. I've got a few things on my plate. And, I, and there are times where we as Christians, we respond to God like that. God, I'll go, but just not right now. I've got other things on my plate. Let me tell you, something when God puts a divine appointment upon your heart you go you don't waste time you don't wait you don't make excuses you go now Philip also could have said you know what Lord I'll go but I really don't want to go there you're sending me to a place that's deserted there's there's nobody there and Lord that, that can't be what you're calling me to do and yet Philip didn't make that excuse he didn't say you know Lord there's not going to be a lot of people there there won't be a lot of fruit there won't be a lot I'm not going in that direction but Philip didn't make that excuse Philip also could have said, you know what, Lord, there are a whole lot of other people back in Jerusalem. You know, I'm over here doing ministry in Samaria. 
They sent Peter and John down here to check out the ministry of what I'm doing. Peter and John are back in Jerusalem, not really doing anything. Or you could send any of the other disciples as well. But he didn't do that. And many of us will do that as well with God, won't we? God, there's plenty of other people at, at Hillcrest that you could send to go do that work. There's plenty of people. In fact, Lord, we pay that pastor to do that work. I've heard that one before, you know. Or isn't that why we elect the deacons? Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Well, to be honest with you, every one of us has been called into ministry. Every one of us has a job that God is calling us to do. And we better do it. And the truth is, is when it comes right down to Scripture, Philip just responded. He goes to Philip and he says, I want you to go. Rise and go toward the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, there were two roads that went to Gaza from Jerusalem. In fact, the first road was the main thoroughfare. It was the most common, most traveled. And it went straight west to the coastal plains through Lydda. But the one that he was being asked to travel was the less traveled road. In fact, many a times it was deserted and nobody was on it. It was south towards Hebron and then west to Gaza. But what I find the most interesting is this last phrase in verse 26 where he says, this is desert. This is desert. In other words, there's not going to really be anybody traveling this road. But the actual the word there for desert comes from the Greek word mesmeria, which means midday or noon. God not only gave him a destination to go, but gave him a time in which to go. I need you to go and do this for me because I have plans. I'll tell you what, I think we miss the plans of God sometimes because we're not on his timetable. We want him to be on our timetable. We miss what God has designed for our lives because we're too busy. And to be honest with you, I can be guilty sometimes of loading my plate up to where I'm not listening to God. I'm not following God. Or God may speak to me and I go, Lord, I just have too much to do today. And God's going, no, you, you scoot all that aside and do what I have planned for you. This guy was told, I want you to go down this certain road at this certain time because I have plans. Look with me at the strategy of God's design. Verse 27 so he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and has come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was sending, reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. This guy was from Ethiopia. You may say, well, we know where Ethiopia is. Well, it was a little bit of a dis different and distinct land back then. It was actually a large area of Africa, south of Egypt. In fact, it contained the whole region of the Upper Nile. More than likely, this is where the Queen of Sheba came from, who came to Solomon to seek out his wisdom and see if it was true. So there had been people that had come to Jerusalem already seeking out the wisdom of what God had portrayed and put upon his king. So there was an interest there with the city of Jerusalem from those in Ethiopia but he was also a eunuch now it's interesting a lot of people say well he was a proselyte well he couldn't be a proselyte because he was a eunuch Deuteronomy 23 tells us that he couldn't be a proselyte and therefore he would be better known as a God fearer just as the centurion in Acts chapter 10 he was a God fearer in other words he was interested in the things of God but he wasn't quite there wasn't quite all the way in and so he was a God fearer he was a eunuch, and he said he had great authority under Candace the queen. Now, the word Candace there would be a lot like Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, or Caesar, who was the ruler of the land of Rome. And so here you get this instance where he's talking about this queen mother, Candace. We don't know if that's her real name, but more than likely a title. And he says, who was in charge of all the treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was seeking something. You're here today. I hope you're seeking something. 
I hope if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're seeking it out. Is this what I need for my life? Is this what I'm pursuing? I hope if you're a Christian, you're here pursuing to hear more from God so that God can get you on the right path, that God can be leading you in the right direction. We need to come with hungry hearts every time we come into church. We need to be coming with a plate empty, ready to receive from God, to fill ourselves up, to feed ourselves on the Word of God, and leave here changed. We need to come ready to be moved by God as opposed to sitting there a lot of times in our pews going, I dare you to move me. We need to come ready to move, ready to hear, ready to serve, ready to see God's face. And so he said he'd come to Jerusalem to worship, but he was returning. I wonder if in Jerusalem he found what he was looking for. I believe he found something that he probably wasn't looking for. In Jerusalem, he found a lot of religious hypocrites. He found Pharisees who dressed the part but didn't act the part. He found men who had long robes and had tassels on the bottom of their robes and could pray long prayers in public, and, but they were taking away widows' houses and, and they were causing others to follow them instead of following God. And they were the ones that looked the part but really didn't act the part. They could look one way but really were another way. And he found these religious hypocrites in Jerusalem, but I also believe he found a sinful culture. When he got to Jerusalem, he found a bunch of sinful people, tax collectors and vagabonds and thieves and corruption. He found a lot of people there that were on the wrong road. He found a lot of people there that, that lived their own natural lives. But I also believe he found the scriptures. And he found something that was worth reading. And so it says was returning and sitting in his chair. He was reading Isaiah, the prophet. He obviously purchased this scroll. Because that's what it was. It was a papyrus scroll that he would roll out and he would begin to read. And as he was reading it, he decided he wanted to know more about this person that they were seeking for. And so he was reading the scripture. I wonder how many times we've ever run into somebody that was reading the scriptures and we would go up like Philip and say, can I help you? Can I help you? Or some of you may say, well, I'm too afraid because I don't know enough about the Bible. Then start digging in. Verse 29 says, the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. Could you imagine? Philip didn't know who this guy was. This guy was prestigious. He was in a chariot. He had an entourage around him. And he just happens to be close enough. He hears the guy reading Isaiah because they read out loud back then. He was reading Isaiah. He hears it. And he simply goes up. And the Lord tells him, go up and overtake the chariot. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times where I've been at certain places and you just happen to run into people and you're only supposed to be there for five minutes and you end up in a 10 minute conversation. Has that ever happened to you? You go to some places. In fact, some of y'all probably been in the grocery store and you see your pastor walking down one aisle and you think to yourself, I don't want to have to stop and talk. I'll turn around and go down another aisle right? It happens. It happens. And so you think about this guy, he had things he had to do and God says, go and overtake him. I want you to stop by this stranger, this person you do not know. And I want you to talk to him. You may say, well, God, you don't want me to talk to strangers. I already have a hard enough time talking to my family. I already have a hard enough time talking to my friends. I already have a hard time talking to coworkers. Now you want me to talk to strangers? The answer is absolutely. God has somebody in your path that he wants you to talk to. Could you imagine all those people that we don't share the gospel with, all those people that we don't tell about Jesus Christ? I believe like Ezekiel chapter 33, there's one day we're going to stand before God like the watchman, and he's going to say their blood is on your hands because you didn't take the time to tell them about me. He said, go up and overtake it. 
Now let's look thirdly at the scriptures of the God's Messiah. Begins in verse 30, says, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scriptures which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture, preach Jesus to him. He had a scripture, he had a scroll. Now, we don't know how long this scroll was. Some have said, well, it was the entire book of Isaiah. That would be one massive scroll. But a lot of people say that Isaiah is divided into two formats. It's divided from chapters 1 to 39 and then chapters 40 to 66. And so possibly, more than likely, he had the latter of the scrolls. Now, could you imagine he gets to Isaiah 53, which is where we find this scripture. But before he got to Isaiah 53, he probably read some pretty other incredible scriptures as he made his way to that passage. In fact, I believe he probably read Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 14, where it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust to the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselors taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? I bet you when he read scriptures like that, he said, man, who is this God? Who is this one that can measure out the world, who created everything by the spoken word? Who is this God? This one that nobody can teach, this one that nobody can train, but it's the one that has all knowledge and all understanding of the world. Who is this God? I believe he read Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28, where it says, have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He probably read scriptures like that and thought to himself wow what a mighty God if he's so mighty certainly he can't be personable certainly he can't be one that reaches down to us but then he would have got to Isaiah 42 in verses 1 to 4 where it says this behold my servant whom I uphold my elect one and whom my soul delights I've put my spirit upon him he'll bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, and he'll bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. I bet he read scriptures like that. He said, wow, the gospel is not only for those around us, but it's also for the Gentiles, and he doesn't want to break those who are already broken. In fact, he wants to mend them. He wants to fix them up and he wants to help them he probably read scriptures like isaiah 43 verses 6 and 7 i'll say to north give them up into the south do not keep them back bring my sons from afar my daughters from the ends of the earth everyone who's called by my name who i've created for my glory i've formed him yes i have made him he probably read scriptures like this all throughout in particular scriptures that talked about the gentiles like isaiah 49 6 he says is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. He would read scriptures like that and think to himself, it's not just for the people of Israel. It's not just for those who think they're the only ones. It's for everybody, including myself. It's for the weak. It's for the lax. It's for the poor. It's for everybody because God's desire is to reach out to the entire world. And then he would get to Isaiah 53. 
And he would read about this Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And he would read about how he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would read about how he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows and we esteemed him stricken. He would read about how he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. And he would learn that we were all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then he gets to verses 7 and 8 where he reads from this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears a silent. So he opened not his mouth. And as he read that, he said, I can't understand it. Who is he talking about? Who? I've been reading this scroll and I read about this servant, this suffering servant, this one who's borne our transgressions and taken our iniquity. Who is this guy? Is it the prophet? Is it the one who's declaring these words? Is he declaring it about God or is it somebody else that God is going to send? Who is this guy? I hope you're asking the same question. I hope if you're not a Christian and you're asking today, who is going to take away my iniquities? Who's going to take away my transgressions? Who's going to pay for my sins? Who's going to give me eternal life? Who's going to save me from myself? Who's going to give me purpose in life? Who's going to watch over me and guide and direct me? Who is going to do these things for me? I hope you're asking that question. Because I want you to know that Philip understands who it is. And he said this to the man. Beginning at his scripture, he preached Jesus to him. This whole book, from Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. You can find him in every single book. He's there. He's always there. He's always been there. He's always been prophesied. He's always been talked about. He's always the one that God has been trying to make known to the world so that we might know he's paid for our sins. He's paid for our transgressions. He has taken it upon himself that we might be free. Man, I'll tell you, when you think about what Philip had to preach there, he had a lot. But I tell you, the Bible tells us that we have a lot to preach as well. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we should be able to give an account for what we believe in. Let me tell you something. If you're not witnessing, I would check whether you're really a Christian. You say, well, how can you say something so strong? Because the Bible makes it clear, if you're not gathering with us, you're scattering abroad. If you're ashamed of what Jesus has done for you, or you're ashamed of the Savior, I mean, we can sit here and hoop and holler over a song. But a song is just a song. The Word of God is the Word of God. When we can't get excited about God's Word and sharing the gospel, we can get excited about worship. You're going to find what they found, what, what this Ethiopian eunuch found in Jerusalem, a whole lot of religious hypocrites. Phil, Peter made the statement. He said, we should be able to give a defense for what we believe in. We should be able to tell people why we have hope. We should be able to tell people why we love the Lord. And here's the thing, they can't just see it on Sunday because guess what? The majority of them are not here to see it on your faces. They have to see it Monday through Saturday. 
If they don't see it in our lives, here's the thing. We don't know what day Philip was sharing the gospel. It probably wasn't on Sunday. It more than likely wasn't on Saturday because they couldn't travel that far. So we know that Philip was sharing it because God had laid it upon his heart. God had directed him to this divine encounter. I need you to go here at this time, and I'm going to show you what you're going to do. Number four, we see the salvation of God's child. Look at verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, I don't know about you, but as we read that, we don't see anything about baptism. But I wonder if he was explaining Jesus to him. He finally got to the Great Commission that he told others that we're to go out and share the gospel, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or maybe he got to Acts chapter 2 where Peter preached Pentecost and asked him, what must I do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Whatever it was, this guy understood baptism. He understood that it was a symbol of his faith in Jesus Christ. And he wanted to show everybody he was unashamed. He said, what keeps me from being baptized? Here's water. Let's make it happen. You may say, well, that doesn't fit our policies and procedures in the church you got to come forward first. And then we need to make sure we give you a baptism pamphlet because we want to make sure that you read it, which you probably don't. And then you know, we got all these steps a lot of times in the church that are not Bible steps. They're man's steps. He goes, he just is sitting there. He's not even made a proclamation of salvation Yet, we're getting ready to see that happen. He says, there's water, let's stop, I want to get dunked. What's keeping me from doing that? And Philip says this, verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now we need to understand something about the word believe. The word believe comes from the Greek word pistis. It simply means a conviction of truth, belief, generally with the included idea of trust, holy fervor, born of faith, and joined with it. In other words, the idea is it is putting absolute trust and faith in the one Jesus Christ and him alone. When you believe with your heart, it means you're giving God your all. You're not just giving him a part of you. It's like James 1.8 says we're not doing it with doubting. But it's like Matthew 16, 24. We're going all in. We're denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. That's when it means giving God your heart. Because the heart, a lot of times we look at it and we say, well, the heart is just what pumps blood through our bodies. Well, the heart represented the innermost part of their being. It represented all that that person was. So when we say we give God our heart, we're giving him everything we are. We're giving him our heart, our mind, our strength, everything that we are. And saying, God, it's all yours. He said, give it to him with all your heart. And I thought this was interesting, the idea of with all your heart. We hear pastors say it all the time. It, I'm going to be honest with you. It drives me crazy when pastors have people raise hands. It does. It just drives me crazy. Here's my thing. If you're all in, don't raise a hand. You come on up. Don't be ashamed. Don't do it while heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're in, you're in. It's that simple. I didn't sit there and go, you know what? I'm telling you, when I got saved, I couldn't wait for the pastor to shut up just so I could go down. And here's the thing. If you're waiting for me to shut up, I still got a little bit. Come on down. There's others down here to help you. 
But the truth is, is when God convicts you, I don't have to manipulate you into raising your hand. I want God's spirit to move in you and you to walk on down here and say, I'm ready. I'm giving it all. I'm giving it to Jesus. Stop raising hands. Give hearts. Give all. Turn it all over to Jesus. He said, with all your heart. Listen to this. I love this. He answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Whew. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe it? I hope you do. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, what he's making a declaration there is, I believe that this passage that I've been reading in Isaiah is exactly who he's been talking about. It's who you told me it's about. It's about Jesus. I believe it. I've settled it. I'm done with it. This is it. I'm all in. Take it. I'm ready to go. And I love it because in verse 3 it says, So he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and he baptized him. Now you've got to understand, again, there's an entourage around that chariot. They hear the message, the speaking that's going on inside. They see a man stop and say, you know what? I'm ready to be all in. So they stop in front of all their friends. They get out of the chariot. They go down into whatever lake or river or whatever it is. And guess what? He baptizes him. That's right. He dunks him. He puts him under to represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this man, when he comes up, I'm going to tell you, there's something about it we're going to read in just a moment. But Philip didn't stop what God was doing. Philip simply got on board and he moved forward with it. You're all in? Then let's finish the change. Let's take it all the way. And lastly, we see the sending of God's man. Look at verse 39. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Man, if you've been saved, it ought to bring joy to your heart. There ought to be rejoicing in you. There ought to be such rejoicing in you that people see it in your life. I'm going to tell you, it is easy for us to rejoice in worship when we're singing. You realize that, right? Man, we can get excited. We can get emotional. We can get involved in it as we should. But I'm here to tell you, nothing should excite a Christian more than the Word of God. Absolutely nothing. Unless the song is directly from the word of God. Man, we ought to be exuberant over this. He was rejoicing. He was ecstatic. Nobody had to tell him, hey, you know what? Now you need to be a happy Christian. Nobody had to tell him that. He was rejoicing, excited, and thrilled over his new relationship with Jesus Christ. But God caught Philip away. You know the word there for caught is the same words used in 1 Thessalonians to snatch them out. It's the same word that's used of the rapture where God's going to snatch us out of this world. God snatched him out of there. You know why? Because he still had work for Philip to do. Praise God. If you win one to Jesus, go find another. He wasn't done with Philip. He didn't get to say, well, I'm done. This has been great. Thanks, Lord. I appreciate taking me down there. You may say, well, why in the world would God take Philip away from the 99 for the one? Have you read Luke 15? Where the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and find the one. Oh, the ministry was prospering there. 
but there was an Ethiopian eunuch. Oh, but God was moving and there were hundreds being saved in Samaria. But there was the treasurer in Candace's court. You see, God took him from the midst of all that and sent him for one. You may say, is one important to God? (laughs) Have you met him? Have you met him? One is absolutely important to God. You're here this morning because you're important to God. You're here this morning because if you were the only one, Jesus would have died for you. Yes, one is important. Jesus will leave the 99 to go and find the one. And this man was rejoicing and excited. But verse 40 says, but Philip was found at Astos and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. There was still more work for him to do. I want you to know that if you're breathing, there is still more work for you to do. God is not done with you. You may say, well, brother, I'm retired. That's okay. You can retire from your job, but you cannot retire from the Lord. You don't get to put God on hold. You don't get to put God on pause. You don't get to tell God what you're going to do. You simply need to say, Lord, I'm here, ready for duty. What do you want me to do? I'm ready to go in, coach. I'm telling you, you need to do like I did when I was in high school playing football. Yes, I was a bench warmer, but I promise you, I aggravated that coach more than anybody else on the team as I followed him around going, let me go, coach. I'm ready to go in, coach. Put me in, coach. I want to play, coach. Let me go in there. I'll catch a pass, coach. I'll stop that guy. Let me go, coach. Man, we need to be doing that with God. God, I'm ready. Send me, Lord. Show me where you want me to go. Show me who you want me to speak to. Give me the time. Give me the place. Put me in. Coach, I'm ready to go. You see, Philip was ready. Because the truth of the matter is, is Philip already had his mind made up. God, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. And I'm going to tell you, it's always funny. I hear pastors say this, and it's so true. Church is not a Sunday decision. It's a Saturday night decision. It is. You already decide on Saturday night if you're coming or not. But I can also tell you this. Witnessing is not a Sunday decision. It's a Monday to Saturday decision. Serving God is not just a Sunday decision. It's a Sunday to Sunday decision. It's an everyday decision. We've got to get to the point where we say, God, here I am. Whatever you want, your will be done with my life. I'm ready to serve. I love this guy. I love Philip, and I love the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm praying that God will put some of these eunuchs in my path, that God will place these people, these divine encounters, these divine appointments that he has set up for us to meet with. But I'm also praying that I have the openness to be ready to hear from him, to know this is what he wants me to do and do it. My question for you this morning, are you open for a divine appointment? Are you willing to cut out whatever you're doing and do what God has told you to do? I tell you, growing up, my dad used to make us work every Saturday pretty much. We'd wash cars, mow the grass, clean houses, things like that. remember one Saturday I was on my video game and I was playing my Nintendo. Yes, the first one. I'm that old. And I was playing my Nintendo, and my dad called out to me and said, Son, you got to get out there and mow the yard. I said, Let me get to a saving point. How many of you have ever tried that with your daddy? Yeah, I tried that one. Let me get to a saving point. 
<laughs> the saving point was him coming upstairs, hitting the power button, and yanking it out of the wall and carrying it downstairs. It was saved all right. It saved my life that he took it and didn't just kill me with it. Many of us will treat God like that, won't we? God says, I got a duty for you. I've got a plan for you. I got something I want you to do. And we go, let me get to a saving point in my life, Lord. I got a few other things on my plate that I got to get to. And when I'm ready to do what you want me to do, I'll let you know. Can I tell you, Paul told Timothy about those guys. He said, those are the defiled vessels that God has set up on his shelf that he's not going to use. But Paul also told Timothy, he said, but he's got those vessels that are approved, that are in his hands, ready to be used. Are you in his hands, ready to be used? God, whatever you want, whenever you want, put me in.